All right, guys, if you have your Bible open and find again Romans chapter 12. Today we're going to consider the second half of this chapter. that We looked at the first half last week, and we talked about how chapter 12 represents a, um, a transition in, in the letter to the Romans, <clears throat> a transition from uh, a doctrinal and theological explanation of the gospel that, that comprised the first 11 chapters of the letter, um, transitioning from that to a predominantly um, practical application of the gospel how it then lives itself out in your, in your life. And we saw all the reasons for that uh, last week, but just a quick reminder of how Paul began the chapter in verse 1, seeing this transition again. He says in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by or because of the mercies of God. And, and you see there, he says, present your bodies living. He's got those three adjectives, living, holy, acceptable. Um, sometimes we interpret that as, as I'm giving myself to God as a sacrifice, I am to, pres- I am to strive to be living, holy, and acceptable. And while that's not untrue in every respect, what Paul is saying, we are to offer our bodies as sacrifices knowing that we already are living, holy, acceptable. In other words, we already are those things in Christ, living. We are alive in Christ. We are made holy by His holiness. We are acceptable, or more literally, it says, well-pleasing to God because He is the well-pleasing Son in whom we are by faith. Uh, and grace. And, and, and then it's on that basis he's now say he says, I appeal to you. He's going to call us to action based on that, what we already are, to, to now live commensurate with that, um, to, to live and offer ourselves in a way that is consistent with that, bearing, bearing witness through the sacrifice of our lives. That gives testimony to the sacrifice of Christ for us, and so last week we we, we talked about uh, how Paul in this in this chapter is saying here here's what it looks like to lay down your your life as a sacrifice to God and to each other. And he began in verses three through eight <clears throat> to talk about uh, the spiritual gifts that each believer has received, and and how uh, we are to use them for the good and benefit of each other. Now I just say it, it would be good for each of you to to, you know, just you and the Lord and, and maybe with, with each other especially. Talk to, to people in your missional community group or whatever. Think through, what are the spiritual gifts that God has given to me? And um, it, it might be something you can consider on your own, just in your own quiet time, uh, thinking about your own, what you perceive to be your giftedness. But often it's something you can learn through the observation of others on your life. Here's what I have seen about you that you seem to be passionate about, seem to be good at, seem to be gifted at. Um, it's, it's just good to know. Uh, and and, and, and those, these spiritual gifts don't always have to be some other thing that, like, 
I never, I never cared about this. Or I never was gifted at that. But all of a sudden, they're, oh, I'm, I'm passionate. There's some other thing that's brand new in my life. It can be that. But it can also be, these spiritual gifts can also be uh, a, 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 uh, some giftedness that God has already wired you to have to have a new direction to it and a heightened passion for it. Um, and, 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 and it would be good to think through that because precisely because of the reasons that Paul is laying out here in, in chapter 12, how you can then use them for the good and benefit of each other. Because whatever gifts you have, Paul, for example, told the Corinthians, you have it for the common good. And we talked a lot about that last week. So in, in using these gifts, we're, our focus is always going to be away from ourselves onto other people for the sake of Christ. And in that way, we're being like Christ ourselves. Um, that's why, by the way, the, the church is called the body of Christ. It's not just because, like a human body, and the, 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 this is the way the analogy is fleshed out in Scripture, so it's, it is that like a human body that has hands and feet and eyes and ears, and they all work together. And so we, though many, many members, we are to work together easily and connectedly like a human body does and function well together that way. Yeah, it is that. But there's a secondary meaning to why the church is called the body of Christ because when the physical Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, he has now poured out his spirit on us and we are now, through his enlivening and enabling Holy Spirit, we are the physical representation of Christ on the earth. We're the body of Christ. And so how we live together uh, bears witness to, to that fact. But um, okay, so here we are in the second half of this chapter. That's the, that's the, the flow of this chapter so far. If you, we're going to look at verses 9 through the end of the chapter today. If you read the passage ahead of time, Romans 12, 9 to 21, it is one command after another. Uh, and essentially, each verse is a different command. Sometimes within the same verse, you have two or three commands. It reads a lot like the book of Proverbs. And uh, in, in that each verse seems to carry its own message. And it's, it's not like the rest of the letter that we've read, that, that uh, each verse is carefully crafted, and it, it'll begin with a for or therefore or a so that, and it's just this, this neat and tidy logical argument that you just follow and learn from. It's not like that. Um, and, and there isn't really anything or much that holds all of this together. And I'll admit that trying to think through how to teach this passage today, I really felt that. Um, I mean, the heading in my Bible, and it, maybe it says it in yours, right above verse 9, is marks of the true Christian. And that's right. That's what it is. But if, if each mark was its own point, it would be like a 24-point lesson. And I don't think you want that. Um, and we don't have the time to spend 24 weeks on it either. Um, so it just kept me looking and looking and looking and looking at the text over and over and over again to see if there really is any kind of unity, any kind of, or more precisely, a flow of thought from one command to the next. So it doesn't feel like we're just jumping around to different things and to help us organize our thoughts as we look at it. And it just kept me looking at the text again and again and asking at each command, if I could imagine what might have led Paul, once he said this, to say what he said next, or to say, give a, a different command somewhere else in this passage. And I do think 
that the passage, while it, it, it does bounce around, it's not as disjointed as it first appears. The more I look at it, the most natural division uh, appears in this passage between verse 16 and 17. And what I mean by that is all the commands that you find in verse, verses 9 through 16 seem to revolve around the actions and attitudes that believers ought to have toward each other um, within the church. And then pretty clearly starting in verse 17, the focus shifts to the actions and attitudes that believers ought to have toward their enemies. Um, not, not, not at all saying we should, cons- we should consider them our enemies, as verse 18 is going to make clear, when it, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people, but enemies in the sense that those who are opposed to Christ, those who are opposed to his gospel, and hence who may oppose us who follow him uh, and do evil toward believers. That's, that's broad strokes where I think the division is. So that being said, let's read the passage, and then I'll lay more out uh, specifically what I want us to see in it. So uh, follow along, Romans 12, as I begin in verse 9, read, follow along with me as I read to the end of the chapter. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit or in the Holy Spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And we come again. Every time we open this book to its pages, we, we recognize this is what it is. There is no other, there is no other possession we have that is like it. And so um, we come again asking your help to study it. Would you give us eyes to see the truth that you would have us to see in, in these various commands Uh, from you through the Apostle Paul. Would you give us eyes to see the truth? Would you give us minds to understand clearly what you would have us to understand in these commands? Would you give us hearts to embrace the truth and wills to obey and put into practice 
what we are admonished to do here? Would you give me the help that I do need to teach and teach clearly? And would you give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us in the Word? I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you're taking notes here, here's how I want us to break, break it down and, and think through it. Just two points divided up along the lines that I, I laid out before we read the passage with that natural break happening between verses 16 and 17. So here's how I would summarize those two sections. From verses 9 through 16, our first point is going to be this. Love each other, pursue the good. Love each other, pursue the good. Again, this is going to focus on how we ought to think about and, and how we ought to act toward each other as believers. Love each other, pursue the good. And then second, verses 17 through 21, the second point is going to be love your enemies, trust the Lord. Love your enemies, trust the Lord. Much of what Paul is going to say in these last verses echoes a lot of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, what John and Peter say elsewhere. Um, pretty simple, pretty straightforward. So let's dive in and think uh, first uh, verses 9 through 16, love each other, pursue the good. We'll start at the beginning of the passage. So like I said, uh, the first part of the, the first section of this uh, passage is, is Paul directing believers how to, how to live and act toward one another in the church. And you can see how he's doing that. You can see that how in, in this group of, of commands, three times you find one another's. So in verse 10, love uh, one another. Verse 11, or no, the second part of verse 10, outdo one another. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. And even if you look at verse 13, well, and by the way, one another's assume, that's why I'm saying one another's assume a definite group of people. It assumes a definite body. So that there is, so one another has some definition to it. But verse 13, we're specifically given a command to do something for the benefit of who? The saints. So in this first section, we're, the focus is on one another. It's on believers. You don't find anything like that, any language like that from verse 17 onward. And so... Now that we, as we have our bearings for this first set, section of the, of the passage, uh, let's, let's look at it a little more closely. And Paul begins in, in an unsurprising place, um, a command to love each other. But it's not just that. If we're looking at verse 9, it's worded in a, in a specific way that deserves attention. He says, let love be genuine. Let it be genuine. And if you're thinking about that, that means it's not just uh, a command for action, do actions that demonstrate love, but it's a command for a posture of heart while doing so. It's, it's, it's a command from the po for the posture of heart from which the actions would flow. It's not just loving deeds, it's genuine love genuine love. Let love be genuine. We're not going to find in many of these commands, what we're going to find is not difficulty in what it says, but more in how do we achieve what it's expecting of us. Um, and this command, this very first command, perhaps, is the clearest example of that. Like, um, it's, it's, it's not difficult to think of ways 
that we can love each other. And in fact, the rest of this passage is going to tell us exactly how to love each other. Right? Um, and it's going to flesh out in practical terms what that can look like. But this command isn't just that, is it? It's, it's, it's not just commanding us what to do, but essentially how to feel when we love each other. Genuinely. It's not just a show. It's not just a duty. It's genuine love. So the question becomes, at least in my mind, how do I obey this? How do I obey this? How do I let love be genuine in my heart? Um, and I think this is precisely where it's, it's helpful not to think of these commands in a vacuum. And, and to keep in mind the context uh, that, that, that led up to this command in the first place. And here, I believe it helps to go back and remember the first words of the chapter again, where Paul's, Paul appeals to all, all these appeals, these commands, they are, according to verse 1, because of, by, because of, in view of God's mercies to us in Christ. In other words, he's saying, because of the mercies that God has shown you in Christ, let your love of one another be genuine in your heart. And, and that's another way of saying the way you cultivate, the way you cultivate genuine love for one another in your heart is through reminding yourself of the gospel. Preaching the gospel to yourself every day. Dwelling on. I mean, because that's what Paul's doing. Brothers, I appeal to you because of the mercies of God. He, it's, it's dwelling on the mercies of God. It's dwelling on the loving kindness that you have received in Jesus Christ, which, again, following the contours of this letter is, thinking the flow of the whole letter of Romans, it's, it's, being, it's being realistically aware of your own sin, it's, it's being aware of the justifying work of Jesus Christ and the sanctifying gift of the Holy Spirit and knowing if, you've, if you start at the beginning and the, and the, and the realistic uh, deserving of your, of your sin, how much of a mercy all those other things are, that, that's what cultivates genuine love in your heart for other people. That's the path of cultivating genuine love that, that, that Jesus himself laid out in John 13. You don't have to turn there, but you, this will be a familiar passage in John 13, 34, where Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. Then he adds this, as I have loved you, so you love one another. Je watch me, Jesus says. Watch me. Watch how I love you. Watch me love you, and then you'll be prepared to love each other in that same way. That's not just the path that Jesus gave, but Paul has already said the same thing in this letter. If you want to hold your place here and just turn back to chapter 5, you'll see this same flow of thought earlier in the, in the letter. At the beginning of chapter 5, remember Paul was focusing on the work of Christ for us, uh, for our justification in verses 1 and 2. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the 
hope of the glory of God. This is, this is the culmination of, look at what Christ has done for us, that we can be justified by faith, have peace with God, access by faith, grace in which we stand. Oh, look at what Christ has done for us. That leads down to verse 5, at the end of verse 5, where he says, in view, because of that love we have received from Christ, he says in verse 5, that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The, uh, the, uh, like the, the, the King James Version says, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. It's been poured into our hearts. It's not just the love that, that we have received because of the justifying work of Jesus on our behalf, but knowing that love that we receive, the Holy Spirit takes that love that He has shown for us, pours it into our hearts that then overflows from us onto other people. So there he's saying it's not only receiving the merciful love from God, but that, that receiving of it is, is transforming in our hearts if we understand it. He's saying that the Holy Spirit now pours that same love into our hearts. We genuinely love with that same love that we've received. So you go back to chapter 12 and verse uh, 9. Paul is saying that kind of love for each other is the governing command of everything that I'm going to say. Over all we do. Just one more, um, one more example. You don't have to turn there. Again, from the Apostle John. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Good memory verses. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. But just think that, that flow of thought. Why are we to love one another? Because love is from God, not just He showed us in Christ, but like He said in Romans 5, 5, it's poured into our hearts by the Spirit. Will we always love each other genuinely? Let love be genuine. Will we always love each other genuinely? We, will we always feel the love that we're called to show to other people? Uh, we know we ought to show love to our brothers in Christ. We're, are we going to like feel it's always going to be genuine? No. Unless I'm the odd man out, no. Especially in if you if you put wheels on the ground and you 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 think about real relationships, and relationships get strained, and and you have people that it's just hard to get along with. They just personalities don't mesh. You bristle up against them, uh, and it 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 you. you it can be tempting, it can be easy for love not to be genuine uh, either because of some sin that strained the relationship or just by neglect. You don't, you're not around them very much. You just don't, personality-wise, don't get along with them. Th that, it's easy for love not to be genuine. For the reasons that we have laid out, even in those kinds of relationships that have been strained by sin or by neglect, the key, Paul is saying, and Scripture says, to loving them genuinely is not just out of sheer duty. It's to think deeply first about the, the undeserved love that Christ has shown you. I mean, do you think that you are easy to get along with to a holy God? You know, it's undeserved from his hand. And it's out of, out of love for him you love them that's a truth that we see in this very 
text. Um, I believe that's what we see in verse 11, by the way, when Paul says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. I take that to be also the Holy Spirit. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. It's, it's as we are doing this unto the Lord in view of His mercies to us that the genuineness of our love for one another grows. Let me also add, in terms of are we always genuine? Is it always genuine? No. Um, let me also add just this is a practical tidbit. Um, when, when we obey uh, the commands of Scripture and, and, and love one another um, through the commands that are in, commanded by Scripture, uh, when, even when you don't feel it, even when you don't feel it, if you will, if you will simply do what the Scripture commands and obey, your heart will often follow in, t- in time. If, if, the, if the command is uh, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, pray, you know, to pray for them, to, to, if you're gonna, like for example, to outdo one another in showing honor, you're going to show them honor, even when your heart doesn't feel in it, if you will obey God and obey the Scriptures and do that, very often your heart will follow. And through the, through the, through the uh, sheer obedience to His commands, the genuineness of your love will follow. The more we... Um, love each other genuinely and are setting our minds on the Lord and on his gospel, that enables us to love each other genuinely, but it also enables us to do the rest of this. It'll enable us to hate evil, abhor what is evil. It'll, it'll ha- help us to do that. H- hating and abhorring evil will just follow, and so will the next command, to hold fast what is good. When, 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 when love of God and love of neighbor is our highest goal. We will in- easily distinguish good from evil. And we will have a holy distaste for evil and a love for what is good. A desire for what is good. So Paul says in verse 10 that we're to love one another with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection. That, the Greek word behind there is Philadelphia. Brotherly love. Um, it's just a reminder that when we love one another in the church, we are loving those to whom we are united in Christ as brothers and sisters. That is especially important to remember when relationships go awry. Um, again, I don't think Paul is talking about someone other than your brother and sister in Christ. When, he, when in verse 14, he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. I think he's still talking about believers. I say that because after saying that in verse 14, he immediately resumes commands that very obviously apply to Christians toward one another. And then how we ought to act toward those who are enemies of ours doesn't start until verse 17. So when in verse 14 he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, I believe he is in this instance at least partly referring to believers who mistreat other believers. And the temptation would be, if they're mistreating me, I'm going to mistreat them in return. If they curse me, I'm going to curse them. I'm going I'm to cancel them. But Paul's admonition in verse 10, though, is remedied to that. It's to remember that, that when we are to 
that we are, when we are to love and bless them rather than curse them, we are loving and blessing those to whom we are related in Christ. Which means it is a person for whom Christ died, bearing their sins as well as ours in his body on the tree. It's not just somebody we can write off. What if the Lord were like that to us? I, it, you'll, find, you'll find this is, I, I find it, and you'll find it when you get older, as you get older, that a lot of people move from church to church to church um, for these reasons. Um, there was some sort of disagreement, some sort of, they were sinned against by some brother or sister in the church, and Rather than loving that person with brotherly love, which if you know anything about brothers, can look like a brawl of absolute malice and hatred one moment and fierce loyalty three minutes later. Instead of patiently pursuing that kind of love for that brother or sister, they just leave the church and go to the next church. But that is contrary to what that passage is saying. Um, to love someone with brotherly affection, by definition, requires perseverance with those with whom it is often difficult to get along, like brothers are. That's also why to love each other in this way requires deliberate action, which is why the second half of verse 10 says, outdo one another in showing honor. I love that. What a crazy competition. You honored me. I'm going to one-up you over and over again. What does it mean to show honor to someone? I'm going to outdo one another in showing honor. How do I honor you? What's a, what's a general way of describing how to honor somebody? Um, it's putting them above yourself. It's, it's some kind of action, some kind of gesture toward that person that puts them above yourself. And by the way, that, that is accomplished not just one-on-one -on -one with that person. Outdoing one another and showing honor often includes how you talk about that person when they're not around. To outdo one another in, in showing honor is when you're in a, in a group of people and they seem to be saying things about somebody else that they would never say if that person was standing here, right? You don't do that. The way you honor that person in that moment is by not joining in that. While, while they say something cutting, you find something positive to say about that person i don't know if y'all ever noticed about this about that person but man they are always and something good right you shift it to an honorable part of the conversation instead of that and and it's it's always putting them above yourself it's also why in verse 16 paul says in the in the second half of verse 16 do not be haughty but associate with the lowly, never be, a, never be wise in your own sight. That phrase, associate with the lowly, 
it literally says, and think about what this phrase could mean. It literally says, accommodate the lowly. Accommodate the lowly. Which is why there's a, there's a, there's a footnote in, in my Bible, and maybe yours too on that verse, that gives an, it offers another translation, which is, give yourself to humble tasks, which would be necessary. That would be a good translation. That would be what is necessary to accommodate the lowly. To accommodate somebody is to do some sort of action that would benefit the lowly. So you give yourself to humble tasks for the lowly. You go lower than the lowly. That's the posture of heart and mind that is absolutely required to show honor like that to one another. That's the posture of heart and mind constantly to put others above yourself. And, and remember that, that in Philippians 2, Paul reminds us this same thing. This is the mind which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not use that as a thing to be uh, used for his own advantage, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. The more we look at Christ, the more we will love like Christ, which should include a, a a comfort and a joy in going low to honor somebody else, to put them above yourself. If we do these things, it will enable us to obey the first part of verse 16, which is live in harmony with one another. And it will enable us to obey verse 15, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We'll also learn, though, in practice that enable us doesn't always mean easy. We are enabled to do many things that aren't easy. Paul seems to know this too, because right in the middle of all of these admonitions about how we ought to live and treat each other, he includes this quick trilogy of commands in verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Even when relationships are difficult, we can still rejoice in hope, knowing that even when it's hard, Romans 8.28 still says what it says. He's working all things together for your good. And for that same reason, we can be patient in tribulation when relationships are hard. And it will drive us to be constant in prayer, which is a good thing. All of these commands to us for how we ought to think and act toward each other are very unnatural to us. They aren't natural instincts to us. Quite the reverse. But by the grace of God, if we keep our eyes fixed on him and we preach our, his gospel to us ourselves every day, we will certainly grow in these things. And if a church loved each other like this, they would be an amazing place. It would be quite an irresistible place. And I pray that God would grant it to us. But this passage isn't just about relationships among believers. Like I said, the latter part of the passage has to do with relationships of believers to those outside the faith. Um, or... or uh, not just really everyone outside the faith, yes, but realistically to those who may have been wronging us in some way or wronging other Christians that we know. And to this situation, I would summarize what Paul says in the latter part as, love your enemies, trust the Lord. Love your enemies, trust the Lord. And we'll be quick here. Paul begins verse 17 with a, with a situation that is, assume, that is assumed some kind of genuine wrong has been done. Some evil has been done to you. And to that, Paul says, never return evil for evil. Instead, what he focuses on is what he says in the second part of that verse, which is essentially, 
don't you ever give cause for somebody to treat you in that way. He says, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. In other words, you never be an instigator of something, either in your words or actions. If somebody does evil to you, if you, instead of doing what is honorable in sight of all, you return evil for evil, if they say something cutting to you, you try to think of something more cutting that you can say back to them, that never fixes anything. It just escalates the argument, right? Don't return evil for evil. But when somebody he wrongs you unjustly, don't return evil for evil, but still continue to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And he furthers that uh, in verse 18 to say generally that you should, you should always, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Now, this, this is a helpful verse to keep in mind, by the way, when um, there has been some kind of wrong done and maybe you did the wrong. Maybe you did the wrong uh, to another person and let's say you take the step and you go to that person and you're, gonna, you're already, if you're in Christ, if, you're, if you have the Holy Spirit, you're going to feel the weight and the, the guilt on your conscience for having done that wrong. It's not a comfortable feeling. You go to that person and you, at, and you apologize, you confess your wrong and you apologize and you ask for their forgiveness and they refuse to grant the forgiveness. It happens. In that case, what you do is, you, that's not a one-off. You still continue to pursue that reconciliation. But all the while, this verse seems to affirm that even if that person never, ever does grant forgiveness that you have sincerely sought, you are still honoring the Lord because as far as it depended on you, you were seeking to live peaceably with that person. In verse 19, Paul returns to the thought that he laid out in verse 17, which was never return evil for evil. And in verse 19, it's stated this way, don't avenge yourself. But notice Paul is saying that even when a, he's saying that even when a legitimate wrong has been done to you, he's not saying nothing is to be done about it. Just take it. And nothing will ever be, it'll never be addressed. No, he says in verse 19, leave it to the wrath of God. And he, and he quotes verses from Deuteronomy and Proverbs that assure the believer that God sees and God knows and he will do what is right. He will do what is just. To, to, to paraphrase my mother-in-law, you can tell on them to God. You know, just tell on them to God. And, 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 and know that God sees and God knows. And he will do justly and far better and far more satisfyingly right your wrong than you could ever feel if you had done it yourself. Verse 20 says that if we leave it to the Lord, it frees us up to love our enemies and do kindness to them, feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, even when it would be the last thing expected from us. And he says in doing so, we heat burning coals on their head, which is, sounds terrible. Uh, I take that as almost in, infuriating them or not giving them the satisfaction of uh, they desire of the, of the wrong that they've done to you. Paul ends where he started in verse 21. Whereas at the outset he told us to hold fast to what is good, he admonishes us here at the end to overcome evil with good. 
This is a passage that is just one, one command after another. But they're only possible in view of God's undeserved mercies to us in Christ and the enabling power of the Holy Spirit who has poured the love of God into our hearts. And as I said earlier, I pray that God would make us this kind of people. You have about uh, five or six minutes to, uh, to talk around your tables about this passage. Maybe, maybe go back through, look, look back at this passage and maybe identify maybe which of these commands you find most difficult <laughs> to put into practice and, and, and think together about how does the gospel equip me to put it into practice even when I personally find it difficult to do so. Maybe talk in those kinds of ways, and I'll close this out in prayer in just a minute.